0: Welcome to Third Culture Therapy, a podcast that looks at the unique ways our social identity and cultural heritage impact our mental and emotional well being. I'm Leila Magrabi, writer, journalist, and host of this show. So many people have asked about my trip to Syria. They want to know what I saw, what I heard, what I felt, how it impacted me, and I understand. But it has taken me a little bit of time for my thoughts and feelings to settle and filter down into something more coherent and holistic and sort of integrated that I can share with all of you. Firstly, my trip was a deeply personal one because Syria is ultimately a part of me. It's a part of home. It wasn't a professional trip. I wasn't going as a journalist on assignment. I didn't have plans necessarily to write or produce something from there, even for this podcast. Like I said, this was primarily a personal trip because Syria has always held a deeply special place in my heart. We have an enduring lover there, her and I. Why? Well, to be honest, not many people are immune to her charms. Um, most people who have visited the country have always spoken of a long-lasting love and affection for the place and of course I'm no exception maybe it's because it's the place that birthed my mother and the place that used to warmly welcome my family during our summer holidays when we would go where cousins and aunts were always waiting for us with a warm embrace is it because Syria Damascus in particular always occupied this sort of summer fling position you know exciting and enticing but you know never around long enough to get bored of or perhaps it was the boys who dared to tease and and chat me up with crude lines when I walked down the street as a young teenager something you didn't get much of in, in England Or perhaps it was the overflow of blood bonds that I was continuously infused with when we visited. Maybe the taste of hearty, fragrant, nourishing food that filled my soul and and stomach with such satisfaction and delight. Or the corner coffees and the endless doorway goodbyes and the effusive hellos and the insistence to eat and always more and more and more of people, stories, sharing, connecting. Of course I was gonna fall in love with that. And it was home, like I said. It was the place where my mother was born and raised, where my father settled as a young teenage refugee from Palestine. It's also where my parents met and married. My mother's family all live in Damascus, and by and large, save for a few young cousins who left during the war, most of my mother's family remain in Damascus. They didn't leave. For me, going to Syria was about reconnecting with my family, being present with them, loving them, receiving love from them, and creating memories that would stand the test of distance and the disparate lives that would inevitably follow my return home to England. Throughout my childhood, as soon as school term ended in London, where I was born, My family would pack our seam bursting suitcases and head to Syria for the entire summer season. In Damascus exists some of my most beautiful, carefree and elated moments. It is a place that united my little nuclear family in diaspora with a larger, vibrant, nourishing group of relatives who were always so warm and so welcoming and made me feel like I was a part of a safe and loving and kind tribe. The effect of that all-encompassing embrace was so big and so starkly different from the loneliness we often felt as a small family living in London that the end of every summer holiday often came with a heavy tax burden, the heartbreak of separation. I was always so desolate and inconsolable on our ride to Damascus Airport to catch our flight back home. I would cry for hours, and then eventually exhausted at fall asleep on my mother's lap in the plane. I think somehow I have been forever searching for a tribe to belong to, to feel held and protected by, to love and be loved by. So when I think about Syria and when I make the effort to go, despite the difficulty and the pain that I know will inevitably follow, it is out of a deep and unlimited love for the country for a place that has been one of my biggest teachers in what true love really is. And I'll explain what I mean by that um, a little further on. As can often be the case with love affairs, (laughs) insecurity can rear its ugly head at times. And uh, being a diaspora resident or citizen, well, sort of citizen, half Syrian who isn't really eligible for uh, citizenship because um, patriarchy means uh, doesn't pass down through the mother, Um, means I've often wondered if I was truly accepted by Syria and its society. Did my family there judge me or question my belonging to Syria because I wasn't necessarily very religious or conservative? I didn't wear a headscarf. Um, My Arabic was okay, not fluent, well, fluent enough, but, you know, not perfect. Didn't know always the latest Arabic pop songs and all the intercultural references. These were some of the worries I had over whether I would be truly accepted as a Syrian. Our lives, you know, mine in the UK, and my family's in Syria were so incredibly, drastically different that I worried I would never really belong to the people and place that I loved so much, that I would remain an outsider, always desperate to get in. But our family's regular visits during the summers and then a longer stint living there as an adult helped put many of those worries to bed. As did the warm welcome I always received from my relatives who never gave any indication that I was not of the tribe. Except when they were gracious enough to uh, give me some allowances and not having to follow all the cultural norms that they did. But when the war started, those old fears and insecurities resurfaced because there was too much of a stark separation of lives. Of the daily anguish, fear, violence, suffering they endured and which I did not. I was truly deeply worried that they would resent my drop-in appearances and that the differences in our lives would be too great a gulf for us to overcome. The truth is, I felt guilty and ashamed. I was beyond lucky to happen to have been born in a place that is largely safe, politically free and culturally liberal. Meanwhile, the rest of my relatives lived in fear for their lives and lost so much of what they had and what they would never even get the chance to have. Wouldn't they resent me, I often wondered to myself? Wouldn't they balk at my excitement at being there? (laughs) Wouldn't they just wish that me and my exuberant, unstained, unabused, peacetime existence would just piss off? Would they be jealous, angry, bemused at why I got the luck of the draw and not them? Bemused at why I even wanted to be there? These were honestly the fears and worries I had about going to Syria way more than passing through armed checkpoints or going through the country's notorious mukhabarat. So when I got there and so many relatives made the effort to see me, who hugged me with warm tears in their eyes, who plied me with coffee and sweets and whatever they had to offer, I felt showered in relief. And was in awe at the power and graciousness of people to see love and affection for what it is and for the value they put on care and connection it was the same with most people that i met not just relatives who you could argue had felt you know sort of familial obligation to me our neighborhood newspaper seller for example was as warm and friendly and happy to see me as he had been during the summer days when I would go to pick up my dad's newspapers from him. Friends I hadn't seen in years took me out to sumptuous lunches and then invited me to join them and their friends for other outings. A friend took me for drinks with his colleagues and then invited me to meet others. At a party I was invited to, I made new acquaintances with whom I instantly connected with and who I made plans to meet up with and even to interview on this podcast. Everyone I met, everywhere I went, transmitted welcome, open-heartedness, kindness, love, affection. Honestly, I was a little bit dumbstruck. I kept expecting them to ask me why I was there and what I wanted, but they didn't. They understood. They could see that I came for love, and they gave me that, and I'll be so eternally grateful for that. They didn't set me apart. They didn't say I had no right. They didn't delineate lines of me and them, I didn't pick it apart or ask them why that was the case. I didn't ask how come they weren't hardened or angry or resentful or annoyed at my presence or quite frankly at life. I didn't want to break the spell for either of us if that is what it was. I didn't want to stir up pain when I didn't need to. I just lathered myself in the warmth and said thank you in whatever way I could. Maybe through all their own daily losses they endured over the years during the war, they understood the universal need for and power of love and connection. Maybe they understood, having had to say goodbye to so many people during this time, that leaving, that exile, that diaspora, displacement are all equally painful losses. There is something else perhaps that they saw or gained that 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 I did not appreciate straight away. It was during a conversation with a friend in Damascus, during which I mentioned that I might want to return and stay for some time, but that I was also a little bit concerned about being one of those voyeuristic interloping outsiders, enjoying Damascus in only the ways an outsider with options to leave and foreign currency can. And he said to me that my presence and the presence of others who came from outside the country actually gives people their hope and a fresh energy that they need to continue living. And I saw that perhaps I did have something to offer by being there, that I wasn't just being selfish or self-interested, that maybe this really was a two-way embrace and that this is why it felt so easy and beautiful in a way, we didn't need to be explicit about what each one was giving the other, but there was certainly a flow of give and take. And that is why the embrace felt so good. It was love. And back to what I was saying earlier about true love and acceptance and what I see it is acceptance of the bad and the ugly as well as the good. I feel like part of the duty of loving Syria and places like there is And its people, of course, is to be present to it and for them to witness the country's pain, its grief, its losses, its disfiguration, its brutality, its debasement and to love it anyway, to hold space for the suffering, the depression, the hopelessness, the endless stories of the difficulties of daily life. I held and offered very little opinions on the political situation in the country, on the different sides taken during the war, on the ravages inflicted, or on the unthinkable confrontations and compromises made by all, willingly or otherwise, throughout the war, and which continue today. I felt like a large dry sponge that was being wiped across the jagged and bloody surfaces of the city, there to soak up, absorb, clear some space, But I would only wring myself out when I left, when someone or somewhere else could bear the outflow, because they had surely suffered enough pain. That is why I found myself crying sporadically during the weeks after I returned to the UK. These are some of the emotional and mental tolls of coming from different places, particularly ones that are in conflict or are demonized and misunderstood. Yes, it's true that I don't have to suffer the daily indignities of life in a place where my life is on the line, but I carry, like many third culture people do, the worries and pains of a home that we can never fully call ours nor fully leave behind. They trail us like shadows, and they haunt us like ghosts, and they hug us like a warm breeze, and they grace us with ephemeral presence. They're always there, even when they're not there, So whether you're in London or Paris or New York or wherever else in the world that is far away from your original home, we all have our metaphorical boxes of stuff, whether we've opened them or not from the places we've left behind. Yes, it can be a burden, and that is our cross to bear. But they can also be enriching if we find a healthy way to carry them. So now that I feel like less of a swollen sponge... I can write and read this out to you without worrying that my voice will break because I do want to share more of the details about life in Damascus now, at least insofar as what I saw myself and experienced. So let me set some scenes for you. When I first arrived in Damascus, I was immediately struck by how lovely it first all appeared. The streets are clean, the roads are wide, the traffic flows... Birds are chirping, green trees line most of the streets, the famously over-referenced jasmine flower breathes through the spring air, and shops and cafes are open, some new ones even have opened up since I was lost in the city a few years ago. So for a moment, even longer, if you don't really speak to anyone who lives there, it can feel like everything is quite serene, that the dark night of war never fell here. The ancient old town was similarly sublime. The renowned al Hamadiyeh was heaving with people, and I was giddy to see the mounds of color and the vibrant spice markets and shops open and the textile quarters and people eating ice cream outside the famous Bakdash shop. It felt like my beautiful, perfect Damascus. But those were particular areas, ones that stayed largely out of the reach of bombs and missiles and artillery fire ones where the scars of conflict weren't physically apparent. When I eventually moved further afield and took a 10 minute drive out of the center to areas that had been relentlessly pummeled by warplanes, it was another world. One that looked closer to scenes of apocalypse than anything where life could possibly exist. Entire neighborhoods were leveled and communities made practically extinct. Buildings upon buildings lay crumbled like biscuits in a heap on the ground. Dusty white and gray stones, graveyards of concrete as far as the eye could see. Histories, memories, lives, families, businesses, all disappeared. There was nothing but hollowed out structures and a few empty shells of buildings that spoke of a prior existence. The person who had taken me on this drive kept pointing out his particular losses. This is where my family's showroom was. I had a storeroom over there. I used to work here, I had a friend who lived there, he said at one point pointing into the air where there was once presumably a residential building. It looked like a film set, like those Hollywood locations for epic war dramas that win dozens of Oscars for stage and costume design except no one was coming out to say cut. The film just kept rolling, no credits, no end. In between these two jarringly different locations, so close and yet so far apart, was a garden center just off the highway. Meters of ground covered in a variety of plants, flowers and trees that promised newness and living. They'll die as soon as you take them out of here, my friend remarked as I looked upon them with interest. Was he talking about the plants? What happened to the millions of people that had to leave their homes? The short answer is everything. Everything happened to them. Some died some survived, some were welcomed, some were rejected, some live in squalor, some have found homes, jobs, some thrived, some were crushed. There is no universal refugee experience to summarize here, particularly when you're talking about at least 12 million people in one go. But I think that whatever happened to them, being plucked from their roots will be a forever pain. War is gruesome and grotesque. We know that and we expect the death toll, destruction, injuries, gains, losses, ceasefires that come with conflict. Even when we say never again. When fighting breaks out, people steal themselves. They hunker down, escape, hide, get armed, join sides, join forces, join rescues. They watch out for territorial gains and news statements and UN resolutions and red lines that always move. And they hope and they know that eventually a side will win aside, we'll lose and the end will come. It is a horrible, brutal experience, but there's something active and ironically even promising because inevitably there will be an end and you just hope that you'll be around for it when it comes. But what happens when after all that waiting and suffering and hoping and praying, the end finally arrives empty handed? I had visited Damascus a few times during the years of active fighting. And there was fear and anxiety and devastation, of course, but there was always a horizon that people looked to, hopefully, when the crisis will end, people would say with anticipation when I'd see them. But in the Damascus I just visited, people's outlook was fogged up by the absence of possibility. The war has officially ended, but it landed like a sack of salt, bitter, heavy, and with limited purpose. Post war Syria is somber and devoid of any of the relief, hope, or promise that is normally associated with the end of conflict. And that is largely because very little that sparked the initial uprising has been resolved, and so many more problems have been created. Crucially, the economy is in tatters, and the political future remains bleak, even if normalization with nor- neighboring Arab countries is happening. The currency continues to rapidly lose its value, a depreciation that has been drastically hastened by the imposition of US-led sanctions in 2019. Prices of basic goods change weekly, and people are gripped by a constant panic over how to afford food, clothing, utility bills. The added zeros were really jarring to me, and it took me a while to get my head around the numbers. I mean, back in the pre-war days, $1 was 50 Syrian liras, and today it's hovering at around 9,000. For me, of course, as a foreigner, life was even cheaper than the already cheap Syria of before. But for people living there and earning locally, it's a daily catastrophe. Everything from food to water to gas gets more expensive month by month. And of course, salaries don't catch up, particularly government ones. Which means people have to supplement, and naturally that means bribery and corruption increase, and so the cycle continues. I mean, if a teacher's monthly salary is 150,000 Syrian liras, and a sandwich costs about 10 000 to 15,000 liras, so you're looking at a monthly salary of a teacher of about 10 sandwiches. So, how's that teacher going to survive? And what do you think they're going to do to try and supplement? There are, in effect, two parallel economies in Syria at the moment the government-subsidized one, and then the free-market one. The first gives you basic goods like gas, sugar, bread, oil at highly subsidized rates, but are rationed. And then you have a free-for-all market system that keeps soaring. People are despairing. They can't keep up with the prices. The middle class has been eradicated, 90% of the population is below the poverty line, and 10% have gone extraordinarily wealthy. Electricity, which used to be 24 hours a day, even actually during the war in Damascus, is now rationed. The best, by best I mean middle to upper class areas, get three hours on, three hours off. The worst, more, most impoverished areas endure more than seven hours off and maybe an hour on if they're lucky. Now, the supposed reasons for the electricity shortages are many and varied, depending on who you ask and what you read. Many of Syria's power plants were among the billions of dollars worth of destroyed infrastructure during the war, though, oddly enough, the shortages came after the worst of the fighting ended, at least in Damascus. Some people blame the U.S.-Kurdish occupation of the oil-rich territory in northeast Syria for taking Syria's fuel, it could also be that Iran, a long-time provider of cheap fuel to its satellite state of Syria, has reduced its uh, offerings. It could also be that the sanctions have impacted buying the necessary components to effectively run power plants. It could be all those things and more. But tellingly, many of the people I spoke to in Damascus felt that the shortages were a form of government coercion and punishment, kind of collective punishment. The areas where opposition and dissent were fiercest get the least amount of electricity. Meanwhile, middle class and largely pro-regime areas get the most. And of course, those with WASTA, important and rich top dogs, can count on 24 hours of electricity by virtue of miraculously hooked up cables. Could it really be a case of retribution? I don't know, and I don't have enough information to give an informed answer or opinion But what I do know is how people think there. Unsurprisingly, solar panels and batteries are popular, if you can afford them. I suppose one beneficial byproduct of the crisis is Syria becoming a poster child for adopting renewable energy. But in all seriousness, what impact is this having on the psyche, the mental and emotional, as well as the physical, health of people there. Well, all of us in the developed outside world can hardly fathom a moment without electricity, let alone hours and hours on end. And there are many, many impacts of not having electricity on people and their lives. But perhaps one of the most basic yet biggest complaints I heard about from locals was the effect on food and eating habits, Syria's famously favorite pastime. Preserving, cooking, eating, feeding are the mainstay pursuits and delights of Syrian households. Overall, the country is not a very consumerist society. Their pleasures and focuses center on eating well and on family. The electricity shortages mean little can be preserved, a lot is thrown out, little is bought. There is a general sadness around anything related to food, as almost every person I spoke with complained of the lack of taste in most produce, particularly meat. That's if they could even afford it. Personally, I thought everything tasted divine. But then I come from plastic fruit land, and my standards are lower. And I suppose I also had my love Syria goggles on. People who survived the war, who stayed there throughout described a different psychological warfare that has now gripped them. And those who thought riding it out, staying in their country until the bitter end, have found the end to be so bitter that they are leaving as fast as any opportunity presents itself. Even though the war may be officially over, its specter remains ever present, particularly with the continued obligation of nearly all men of a certain age to do compulsory military service. Now, this existed even before the war, a legacy of the an enmity between Syria and neighboring Israel, who has occupied Syria's Golan Heights since 1967. It has almost always been detested for the waste of prime young adult years, learning how to put together outdated weapons and enduring insults and abusive treatment from superiors. However, the war turned a nuisance into a nightmare. Tens of thousands of young men conscripted into military service to fight their countrymen perished in the last 12 years. Fear over their safety is real. No one, whatever side they assume, wants their child to enter the military. The years taken off their lives physically, mentally, emotionally are too high a cost even if the actual cost to get out of military service is very high indeed. Because there are loopholes to serving. The first, which is entirely free, is if you happen to be the only son to your mother. The second is if you are physically or mentally unfit for service. As for the rest, the only real way out of it is by paying about $8,000. But you also have to leave the country for a minimum number of years in order to be able to pay that and and get that sort of exemption. Or you can actually serve and um, pay hefty bribes essentially to get a desk or driver job that will um, keep your hands clean there are other delay tactics too studying for example is one of them but then what do students do they extend and protract their education failing themselves as often as they can in order to delay being drafted into the military so these are the options leaving the country spending every penny you have and failing yourself what sort of psyche does this build in people that anything, exile, destitution, failure, is better than joining the army that is ostensibly there to serve and protect you. And what does it say of the system at large, that some people, always the rich and connected, can get out of doing this ugly work, while those who are poor and without Wasta can't? And so more and more men leave. Those who survived understand all too well that there is little to no thriving in Syria anymore. So they go. And so more families split and fracture. More mothers' hearts break as they realize that they've raised their children to become exiles, separated from their warmth, their love, their affection, their family. They also wonder where they will end up in a society that is predicated on the familial contract of I take care of you when you are young so that you take care of me when I'm old. How do the dynamics of caring, giving and receiving shift and alter? So everyone misses someone. Everyone's heart is missing pieces they're not sure they'll ever get back. Or if they would even want to, given the high cost associated with it. Leaving and loss are hard, but at least you are giving your offspring the opportunities to survive, hopefully thrive, elsewhere. The heart-aching wish to be together with your family is fraught with guilt and resistance. To bring them close is to expose them to danger. So I painted a pretty sad and desolate picture for you and I'm sorry because I know many of you will be listening with a heavy heart and tears in your eyes but let me tell you something else that I experienced there. A lot of laughter. In Syria today there's an uptick in humor. Everyone is an amateur comedian these days. I heard all sorts of situations from the lack of gas or electricity to the increasing illnesses and the country's plans for reconstruction all were spoken of with mockery, ridicule, laughter, embellishment, humor to buffer the pain, jokes to ease the stress. And I was lucky enough to catch a new comedy night in Damascus that is being held weekly and is full of talent and an eager audience. It was witty and biting and dark and most of all relieving of the overwhelming tensions. I was happy to see that outlet available, a place to channel the deeply suffocating mental and health anguish people are living through and it isn't all about the war you know it's about love and sex and marriage and studying and all the regular life things people talk and laugh about it is also about collective healing there are other positive social indicators I witnessed greater freedom for women they are after all the majority sex left in the country more and more have entered the workforce our primary caregivers or primary breadwinners a breakdown in strict cultural rules, for better or worse, has occurred. There's more of a liberal, easygoing way of approaching relationships and interactions between men and women because, honestly, there are far bigger issues to deal with. Greater awareness and understanding of people from different parts of the country, too, that I saw. The six million internally displaced people went all over the country to find refuge and to find new homes. That means the previously siloed provinces have been burst into one another. People from the countryside know the city folk. Merchants know the farmers. Northerners know Southerners. Coastal people know the city people in a way that they never did know before, definitely not as intimately. And so prejudices and stereotypes have been broken down. Syrians collectively are getting to know one another in a more intimate and authentic way. But stress and worry no doubt, have become woven into the fabric of everyday life. I mean, how does it feel to be either pitied, attacked, or vilified globally anyway? If it isn't the Russian Air Force, it's the Iranian ground troops. If it isn't Israeli missiles, it's American sanctions. If it isn't anti-refugees, it's anti-dissidents. On all fronts, internal and external, Syrians are closed in and suffocated. So what is the impact? I don't know long-term. But I will continue to go when I can, to witness what I can, to hold what I can, to see what I can. Because it matters to me to care and to show others that they are cared for too. And to tell stories to keep their lives important to whoever cares to listen. And what of the impact on me? It will be a pain to bear. One, I can because of love, because of space, because of a desire to honor the duality that exists within me and many others like me, who come from places and spaces that we both belong to and don't. We're witnesses with a privilege and a duty, or responsibility, perhaps, to do something with that. And so what if it hurts? All the best things tend to at some point but at least I know better now what that means and that I'm allowed to honor my own pain and sadness. Maybe not there, where the visceral and immediate problems of existing are paramount, but elsewhere, among friends who have capacity to hold space for me, with people from war-torn countries and diaspora backgrounds. Processing the conflicting, painful, and joyful feelings around my mother country can be tricky, particularly when my home is far away both physically and emotionally from Syria. There are so many disparate, interconnected, complex and heavy thoughts and feelings to grapple with. And I've often historically reverted to silence as a means of coping with them. Silence because its protectiveness keeps me and my memories safe. Silence because it gives me time to feel. Silence, because there are rarely sufficient words to explain what I have really seen, heard, felt, cried over and laughed at to people for whom Syria remains predominantly a news headline or TikTok tourism reel. Many people have asked me what Syria is like and truthfully, depending on who they are and my capacity for open vulnerability at the time, my answer varies. But I have become very adept at concealment and defection. It's actually a skill I developed in childhood when I realized that my emotional needs were not always going to be met by particular people under particular situations. I would hide them, shirk off questions, redirect inquiries because I lack trust in people's ability to see and hold my feelings adequately. If anything, I've been trying to break that practice apart in adulthood because I understand that those traits don't lend themselves to authentic and meaningful connections with people and that I developed a self-defense mechanism that is not necessarily defending me as much as it is excluding me from the possibility of realness. But there are times when one really doesn't have the mental or emotional bandwidth to excavate raw thoughts and feelings, only for them to be met with cartoonish awe or awkward foot shuffling. And let's be honest, coming from conflict areas, occupied territories, unlike countries means you're always going to have the bad with the good and it will be complicated and it will hurt. One moment I may talk to you of the sumptuous kousa mehshi, stuffed courgettes I ate and the family I, gatherings I soaked up before I start to tear up about the rationing of food and the changing taste of the famous Syrian palate. So when I'm asked how it was or what I think or what it's like, I scan the situation in person in front of me before deciding how to respond. Because I can't bear to arrive with all that baggage only to be left holding the suitcases alone. I think that is what we mean when we talk about holding or carrying space for someone else and without judgment here, but not everyone is good at doing that. So there are those times when I avoid the question altogether. Sometimes I do it through vlogs or podcasts like this or write ups, which mean that I can talk about it without expecting a response. So that means each side gets what they're after. I get to share and they get to learn without us having to deal with the sticky exchange part in the middle. Because I'm also conscious of not wanting to bum people out of the fact that often the answer doesn't change when you ask me, how is it? Well, in all honesty, it's still pretty shit. Like the last 12, 13 years. And a lot of people don't want that answer. They want hope and a happy ending. And sorry, damned if I'm gonna be giving that when I can't even give that to the people that need it the most. So I shift and I shirk and I seek out people who can sit with the duality and the difficulty of life being beautiful and brutal at the same time of the complexity of an answer that won't leave you feeling relieved or better or hopeful but may leave you richer and closer to the one who is answering unsurprisingly i find that most easily in people with similar backgrounds arabs mostly but not exclusively but simply because every arab comes from a similarly devastating background whether in the present or in the near past And the beautiful thing I've noticed lately is that we don't necessarily talk about it, but our presence in each other's lives, our nods to each other's efforts to expand and further our causes in whatever way we can, music, film, art, media, writing, podcasting, vlogging, whatever, is how we show up for each other and say that we see you, we feel you, we support you, we love you. And that is all the affection I need right now. I was lucky to come back to London with an eager and willing tribe ready to listen to me, to hold space for me, to delicately walk through my trip with me and to support my silence when I needed it, while also showing me that they were there whenever I was ready. I hope that wherever you are from or wherever you have been, that there are people who will carry you back home safely with their soft, understanding eyes, their questionless hugs, their invitations to creative events that will stir your emotions while they can gently pat your back and show you that you will be held so that you can rebuild the energy you need to give back to those who need it the most. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode on my trip to Damascus and learned something more about Syria and its people. I'm sure that they would appreciate knowing that there are those who care and are interested in their lives and in what they are going through. So thank you for your time. And thank you all for supporting this podcast. It's a true labor of love. And I really enjoy producing this and hearing your thoughts and impressions on the episodes and the various interviewees. I would be so grateful if you could take that support one step further and like, review, rate, subscribe, follow, download, share episodes because that really helps spread the word and helps me be able to create more content. So in the meantime, take good care of yourselves and thank you for listening third culture therapy is available to listen on spotify apple podcasts google podcasts and rami it's also now on youtube um, at third culture therapy podcast more details also can be found on my website leilamagraby.com as well as my instagram twitter and linkedin profiles